in the context of gun violence, it doesn't necessarily fit into this notion that because of patriarchy and race that black women are going to be the most impacted and oppressed within that particular dimension. Given the ways in which gender operates within a white supremacist society, black men are seen as particular forms of threats and socialized within a certain gender context where these forms of gun violence, they're both more likely to be perpetrators and victims of that gun violence. So it's not a diminution of the domestic violence that women face or other forms of violence other people face. To talk about within this particular dimension of power and violence, we need to just look at the unique experiences of black men. In a theory like multidimensionality, we're not having a problem with that. But in some versions of how intersectionality has been applied, that is seen as replicating intersectional invisibility of the very real and important other forms of violence that black women and other people face. So I just think it comes down to how we interpret what it means to talk about issues as if, you know, this idea of centering. Mm -hmm. There's only one center. Mm -hmm. And if I'm in the center as a black man, then you can't be in the center as a black woman. But if you have multiple dimensions and different problems, that's not a static individual center. But the context of a problem studies the problem. Mm -hmm. And if it's gun violence, then it's black men. And, build, and building off of something that, um, that Dr. Curry, you know, talks about, I think is important. And, and he's not original in this regard. I mean, we, you know, we, we did a segment um, a while ago about Afro-pessimism. I think Wilderson talks about, you know, this as well, really borrowing from Fanon, um, you know, the concept of Negrophobia. But in this particular context... You know, Negrophobia as the use and discussion of black suffering to elevate black professionals and others away from the pathology that they feel is inherent to the black community, their attempt to run away from it. And that a lot of times there are folks that are talking about black oppression really is a mechanism to get away from it. And that I, and, and, and there are times when I think about the larger discourse on the prog on progressives and the left, and you know even some liberals, you know the conversations around violence seem to be animated. The lack of focus on this seem to be animated by a desire to get away from the very messy, complex challenges of Black life, working class and poor Black folks um, that folks aspire to be away from, and I and and. And in a lot of ways, I just I don't think that there's enough honesty around folks being clear that that's that that it's a big underlying aspect of their analysis, which I also think contributes to this issue not really being put on the table because it's the closest to like the actual lived experiences of black people that are not able to be addressed by, you know, complex intellectual mm -hmm. political theorization. Yeah, I remember, I mean, we had a conference and there was a talk about gun violence. And then, you know, one of the community violence people, you know, indigenous black grassroots folks, Marvin McKinstry, was talking about violence. And there were people who were more middle class black professionals in the audience. And they were just like, but why do they shoot people? And it's like, well, you know. And it's like, no, I don't know. Why do right. these people shoot people? It's like they couldn't understand a very basic level how you could get yourself to the point of shooting somebody. 
And I think that it's something that we talk about. There's, you know, there's some class dynamics going on here with just the ability to even conceptualize the reality of someone who grows up, you know, not just like poor, but like in an environment where unfortunately these dynamics of being in the street economy, of having no police protection, of having people cycling in and out of jail, being exposed to extreme forms of violence, has unfortunately become the norm. And these are unique pockets of American life, which even for people who claim to be progressive and care about black people, the reality of what's happening there feels so scary, feels so terrible, that you can't really study it. It's almost as if there's no there there. Like there can't be culture there. There can't be resources there because it's so pathological. Mm. You know, so the idea of studying is like, no, we'll just give universal basic income. And that, that, that means I don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, so the actual engagement of what happens in these communities for a lot of people, you know, it's not, it's not unique to not unique criticism to anybody. It's just these dynamics are very difficult to think about, especially for a certain type of person who maybe feels a little bit older, somewhat responsible for the fact that these things happen, quote-unquote, on their watch, mm. which is a dynamic with some, you know, elders, you know, a boomers, Gen X, black folks who, you know, maybe had some power, maybe had some institutional access, but these things still happen. So it's really shame, it's fear, and it's a lot of very complex dynamics that sometimes it's easier just not to think about it. Mm-hmm. And you can't put yourself in a position to understand peeing up a gun and shooting someone can be a rational choice in the context of these environments. Mm-hmm. And what it means to get yourself to understand that rationality would be to go so deep into those experiences of violence that a lot of people don't want to do that. Yeah. So let's let's pivot because I think, you know, so there's, there's the policy questions um, and kind of practical solutions question, you know, that we've kind of dealt a little bit with, um, you know, but there's also an aspect of it that's like, what are the political consequences? I've argued that the political consequence is that, you know, what, you know, whatever, what's, what's called the progressive movement, um, you know, many people that call themselves leftists, um, don't have real significant substantive bases of black support in the community. And I, and I, and I believe that a big part of that has to do with the fact that this is such a central issue for a lot of black people that not addressing it would cause people to question your credibility as a person who cares about black people. So I think that there are, there, there's tremendous political opportunities being missed, you know, and, and we, you know, you and I are, we've been very critical of leftists and progressives but in our criticism, you know, what folks should be clear about is a lot of the policies that folks are pushing for are policies that we've supported and advocated for. You know, criminal justice reform, police accountability, you know, uh, redistribution of public resources. I mean, these are things that, you know, we advocate for, you know, as a matter of policy. So, I'll, you know, I want people to be clear that this isn't a criticism because some people would try to argue this is a criticism that comes from the right wing to undermine, you know, leftist and progressive political movements. But but for me, in thinking about like what does it mean to win politically? And what that means is being able to build a base that can be marshaled to to be used um for for black political power. And so I think it's important this issue to me is so important because I think it unlocks a base that unfortunately, 
the people who've spoken most directly to it mm-hmm. are the people from whom are on the other side of us policy-wise, right? The people who are the tough on crime, mass incarceration, sense enhancement, more money to police. Those are the folks that have spoken most directly to our community about addressing violence. And the solutions that are coming from leftists and progressives are not directly addressing it. So it's almost like that ground is being ceded to the conservatives in a way that hurts the ability for folks mm-hmm. to advance the kind of policies. And I would argue, I mean, you know, the successes that LBS has had on many of these issues, I think, comes as a result of the fact that we've addressed these issues um, and therefore has allowed us to push on more progressive and leftist policy yeah. proposals in ways that other leftists and progressives haven't been able to. So say, so what, before we go deeper, say a little bit, little bit about that. Yeah. It, it gets back to the conversation about um, it. So I think about it through the lens of when you think about how people say, well, it's a question of poverty. It's a question of redistribution of resources. It's the short term, long term dynamic where it's like, yes, long term, if we were to take the GDP and redistribute it, that would have serious implications on the dynamics of violence in our community. But in a world where in places like Baltimore, 250 to 350 people dying every year. And this is the most traumatic event of someone's life. It can shatter someone's life. They don't have much hope, first of all, that you're actually going to be effective in redistributing those resources at all, period. Because they're looking at the track record of America and making a rational determination that betting on long-term economic redistribution is not a logical bet. And they don't see, there's no inherent trade-off. There's no reason you can't talk about long-term fundamental economic redistribution and short-term how do we have a theory of building institutions that can address the drivers of violence in our community. And if your solution is just more nonprofits, I think people in the community, I jokingly say, if nonprofits were the solution, Chicago and Baltimore should be a utopia. I don't think people in the community, they don't see that inherently as a solution because they've experienced wave after wave of nonprofit coming in, claiming to do programming in their community, not consulting them, not engaging them, not building upon indigenous infrastructure, but oftentimes replacing it or literally repressing it in the name of supporting their nonprofit. So they don't see things like um, the redistribution of resources through things like um, Build Back Better inherently as a progressive utopia they can buy into because they don't think that just that money itself has not seen itself to be the solution. Like, I went to school in Baltimore where, you know, there were periods of time where Baltimore was massively, massively, state of Maryland was massively, massively underfunding Baltimore City Public Schools. And they've been putting more resources in, and it's nowhere near enough. But I don't know if people would genuinely, genu- generally say that 20 years later, after lawsuit after lawsuit, after investment after investment, you can fundamentally see a shift in the experience of a Baltimore City Public School student from when I went to Baltimore City Public Schools, at the period where they were most defunded per pupil. And I think people see things like that, and that's where they say, well, where's the money going? Mm-hmm. Who's getting the money? And that's seen as, you know, a fracturing, a political coalition fracturing question. You're fracturing the left. Mm-hmm. No. Where the money going? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you need to actually make an argument to people. It's like, this is what we're doing. This is our methodology. This is the person who's going to run it. This is why I should get this money. Mm-hmm. And people aren't always going to agree with you. But there's just this reticence to actually deal with the mechanics of how power flows on the left. Mm-hmm. It's almost as if that the deeper you go in the, in the 
um, the root cause argument, the less you actually want to or actually talk about the nitty gritty mechanics of how it's actually going to work in details. Mm-hmm. And that's what people want. Mm. It's like they want some of those details. It's like I got my mans in now. They've been broke doing this work on North Avenue for five, six, seven years. Are you going to give them money? And then it's like just saying redistribute resources, don't ask questions like that. Right, right. So I want to break this into two parts because so there's one part of it where I think when we look electorally, you know, we, uh, there's the uh, Minneapolis ballot measure um, that attempted to abolish the police department, create a new public health-based department that will be an alternative to the police department. Again, you you know, mm-hmm. you discussed yeah. the kind of public health centricity <laughs> there and the problems with that. And that failed. I think we see electorally across the country, um, you know, so, you know, progressive prosecutors and legislators being defeated. So a part of what I'm observing has happened, I mean, it happened in Baltimore, you know, city, you know, Marilyn Mosby, you know, losing um, in the primary um, to Ivan Bates who's already made some proclamations around, you know, being tougher on crime, you know, kind of the same rhetoric that we saw, you know, 90s and 2000s. So, and I, and, and so I think a part of raising that, and we'll see in the midterms how that shows up in the general. Again, I think one of the impacts is that progressives have not done a good job of talking about the mechanics of how these policies don't work. I feel like there's a reliance on certain talking points and buzzwords, right? Where people talk about mass incarceration, but won't get into the weeds, for instance. You know, one of the things that we've had to advocate for a lot or advocate advocate against um, are sentence enhancements. You know, the natural inclination is we need to increase penalties for violent crime. And so having to explain to people you know, who are relatively high-ranking political officials, explaining to them that sense enhancements on possession of a firearm, commission of a violent crime, that's already a five-year mandatory minimum. And that increasing the penalties on that is circumventing the real question, which is that if a person murders someone, and again, you know, to our abolitionist friends, you know, in the context of the existing world that we're in, because in a, in a more perfect world, we'd have other ways of dealing with this. But given the world that we're in, a person murders someone, you know, the community wants them to go to prison, that's already 25 to life. And if, you know, if, if that person is going to be locked away, you have the, the prosecutors have the appropriate penalties for that. So I've asked, I've directly asked this question to advocates of these sense enhancements. Why not just charge the person with murder? I mean, because there are times, for instance, where when people get killed in the community, there are times where I know people who know who mm-hmm. did what. So it's like, why can't you just charge them, you know, with murder? And I never get a good answer in response to that. What ends up actually being the case is that these sense enhancements are workarounds. Because, and, and, and this isn't something that gets said a bunch or enough by progressives in, in this context, it is the level of incompetence and corruption of law enforcement creates an environment that actually exacerbates public safety. Mm-hmm. And that these sentence enhancements, in many ways, are condoning 
the incompetence and corruption. As, mm-hmm. as opposed to saying, and that's why our work on police accountability has an impact on public safety in the sense that's like, let's deal with addressing the department and dealing with the corruption and incompetence. That allows a better chance of dealing with some of the more extreme forms of violence in our community, mm-hmm. given the existing system. And I just don't find that that level of explanation on policies that are espoused yeah, yeah. by more conservatives, and I blame I blame that on progressives, and I think that that contributes electorally to progressives and progressive measures failing. Yeah. So just to take a brief step back, there's a lot of people essentially misquoting Andre Lord talking about the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house. There's this almost pride and ignorance around policy details mm. because that's seen as engaging and studying reformism of the world that is, the fallen world that is, as opposed to the radical imagination of the world to come. If you're in a community that's suffering from 350 murders per year, you're not too worried about the world to come. You're worried about making sure your sister, your brother, your lover, your daughter, your grandchild can make it to the next day. So there are arguments to be made that can show a broader consensus around progressive policies by linking the arguments around police reform, around the incompetence of police, to a concern people have organically, which is, why can't they solve any of these murders? Why do these bodies keep dropping? Obviously, and we say this all the time, there's limited evidence of clear deterrent effects of locking more people up. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't lock murderers up, that we can't deter some of these murders, or that some people are shooting because they're poor. Some people are shooting because they've internalized racism. But you get to a point where if the community deems you to be a predator and you've developed an affinity for violence, you're too dangerous to be outside. And the community needs a mechanism to be able to actually address it when they deem someone as too dangerous to community. And right now that mechanism is police. So by actually making the argument that you've made continuously that police reform is important, because the cops are literally too incompetent to make a murder case that will stand up in court. When people in the community hear that, they say, oh, I've never heard that argument explained that way before. What I've heard is Black Lives Matter, stop killing us, killing us, rah, 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 justice, freedom. I've never heard that, oh, I need these bodies to stop dropping, and you're telling me police can't even do that because there's no oversight, because they lie all the time because they lose evidence because of all this corruption. That's a way to talk about police corruption I haven't heard before. That's linking to now you start activating community, like community associations. Now you start activating people who are deemed more conservative mm-hmm. in the community that don't typically say abolish police. Mm-hmm. You're able to bring them into a broader political coalition that can actually activate policy change in a way that has not been a methodology of organizing on the left for the most part, right. right? And again, some people say that as reformism and making coalitions and deals with the devil and, you know, I guess we'll talk about it. Some people call them the fat back and biscuits brigade. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's like, well, are you going to continuously demonstrate quote unquote intellectual superiority over these folks or are you going to try to organize? Mm-hmm. And this methodology of organizing has not been central to much of the politics of the left. Um, and I think the failures of Minnesota, the failures of some of these progressive DAs, the ones that have failed, a lot of them have failed because they have not made inroads into these different demographics and political formations in these heterogeneous cities. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to simply lamenting that, 
it may be useful to understand that there are very rational reasons why people make these decisions mm-hmm. and to actually make an argument that appeals to what they have demonstrated they already care about. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to build on one of the points you made, because I think you're right, like this, almost like this purity test of are you legitimately radical or progressive? Because I'm crystal clear, and I think anyone who's read the things that we produced are crystal clear. You know, it's pan-African nationalists, you know, anti-capitalists, you know, anti-imperialists. Like, all those things are things that we advocate for, we support. Um, but but being able to organize black pe- working-class black people in the context that we're in, where they're internalizing the propaganda and having to have immediate needs met. Like, being able to both talk about the systems that exist and, addre- and addressing those systems on the terms that they do exist while also being able to bring folks along, right? And I think our ability to both speak to those concrete realities, but also espouse the radical politics that we do, is we're able to bring people along. And this brings me to, you know, really the the, the second part, and really the culmination of the conversation, which is, and we refer to it, which is the base building part. Um, so, you know, again, as we've talked about, Addressing this issue to me seems like one of the greatest space building opportunities for progressives and leftists that exist in our current moment. And the kind of absence of directly dealing with this issue, I think, presents a challenge where black folks are not gravitating to policies that I think many of us would, um, you know, say that it helps black people more than anybody else. And you know, one of the things that I've heard folks say, um, you kind of, um, you mentioned a little bit, um, you know, I was watching the This Is Revolution podcast and, and uh, Pascal Robert and others. I've heard say that there's a moment where there's a moment where progressive whites are to the left of black people and that and that it's a unique challenge in this moment because that hasn't historically been the case. And I and for me. I think it's important to really complicate that, right? Because I think it's way more complex than that analysis. Because I think we're we're seeing more white people espouse radical progressive politics, but we're seeing it done in a way that actually isn't building with black people. And again, if we're not addressing something that's of a great immediate concern of black people like violence, then the ability to build a base to support those policies, it's less about the politics of black people. It's more about the political vehicles that are being used are political vehicles that do not prioritize what working class black people are actually thinking and talking about. Mm-hmm. And and I think that without and again, without addressing it, it just it exceeds all that ground to the conservatives to continue to build a base. Again, I don't want that to be attributed to black people having conservative tendencies. I want to attribute that to the fact that the people speaking directly to black people happen to be mm-hmm. those folks with more conservative politics. Yeah, and I think if you really understand this critique of the public health system, there's nothing left about it. I mean, the last episode, I was literally showing quotes of the violence prevention nonprofit that, again, people who don't know any better, these so-called white progressives, say violence prevention is an alternative to police. Go talk to your local violence prevention nonprofit. They probably aren't saying that. They're probably saying we work with the police. We are part of a larger public safety strategy. 
And some people, like the people I showed in the last uh, In Search of Black Power episode, their violence prevention nonprofits are literally telling cops, hey, if Johnny's not coming to the meeting, lock him up for that dime bag of weed, because that puts him in the system, which means I can grab him again. And it's like, weed is legal in the state where the person said this. It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So these appendages of paternalistic white liberal control, again, well-meaning white progressives, there is a deep rhetorical emotional desire to wash yourself clean of violence. So they're making more radical statements, probably, because they don't have to generally be accountable to implementing it, to defending it, or they know if it is implemented, they will benefit. Mm-hmm. While black folks have to be more precise and realistic in terms of this is what we want because we have to actually live with these realities. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, you know, even and we're going to talk about this in a future episode, but, you know, Dorothy Roberts talking about the child uh, family management system, so-called child welfare system. We got people saying defund the police, fund child welfare. It's like, holy crap, do you not know that those are the same thing? Mm-hmm. You know, so just this general um, inability to understand. And like you said, this is actually a base building possibility, but you would have to be, you would have to engage in a coalition where you don't have total control. Mm-hmm. And I think that people on the left, most of them don't even know that they're not comfortable with that. Mm-hmm. They're, they're accustomed to the idea that black people are serving them in the coalition. Mm-hmm. And the idea of having to have black people lead and support that, well, that's not, co- that's not a coalition. That's mm-hmm. reverse racism. That's, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Well, that's it for this conversation. Um, thank you for tuning in to In Search of Black Power. This is uh, Dave on Love again, Director of Public Policy, Leaders of Beautiful Struggle. My man Lawrence, I'll see you soon.